go ahead and take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we are finishing our time this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of sad. might feel a little bit of sadness over leaving this text. I hope our time has been profitable. Matthew chapter 7, and actually we're going to read into chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 28 and 29 in chapter 7 and verse 1 in chapter 8 and and kind of put a bow on, on this time together. The question when we come to this text is why? We've read a lot of red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, we've read a lot of red letters up until this point. When we come to 28, 29, and 8, 1, and we see black letters for the first time in quite a while. These words are just as authoritative, just as important uh, to our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount and to what Jesus has communicated to us throughout our time, just as important uh, as all of those red letters before if you have a red letter Bible. And so as we come to this, let's read it together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the table back there. Go, feel free to stand up and grab one. Um, we're going to take a look and read this together. So, Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 28 and 29, and then we'll look at verse 1 in chapter 8 as well. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Yesterday, we celebrated Abel's fifth birthday. Abel's our oldest child. It was his fifth birthday on Thursday. We celebrated his fifth birthday yesterday. We had a party. Abel and I went to the store, and we picked out balloons. It was exciting. It was an exciting event. We immediately walked outside, and because we live in North Dakota, the wind was blowing at 40 miles per hour, and they blew away. (laughs) And so we suffered a significant trauma in that moment. Uh, One, my child was incredibly emotional because he was five and the balloons blew away. Me, because I looked down and saw that the balloons were adhered to the string with a small piece of scotch tape. We live in North Dakota. (laughs) It's always windy. There is never a time where the wind is not blowing. So, in a slight fit of rage, I picked him up and walked into the store and demanded a a refund, um, of which I obtained with very little resistance. (laughs) The reality of a text like this when we come here, (laughs) why? Why did I just tell that? The reality of the text like this when we come here is that We have the Sermon on the Mount, we have all of the words of Jesus, all of the words that you see in red up behind it, and there's a lot of weight coming up to verses 28 and 29 and 8, 1. And that kind of makes up the balloon of our understanding. But there is a tether that comes to our heart, and that drives this down into the deep recesses of our, our heart, and it's this statement that Matthew makes. When his first readers, when Matthew penned this and organized his gospel in the way that he organized it, when he penned this for the very first time and people picked this up and read it, they would have seen the clear line as he wrote these three verses, a clear line from the bulk of Jesus' sermon all the way down to their heart. 
And so the question is, why is this here? And I think it's because we do not want a flimsy piece of scotch tape holding our balloon in North Dakota winds. We need something much, much stronger. And so we see here the things that are contained in these three verses, and we understand that the balloon is held to the string that tethers it, it to our hearts with a whole roll of duct tape and not just a piece of flimsy scotch tape. And so in this text then, we come to the end and we tend to gloss over verses like this because it's kind of like the setting where Jesus has been and, and where he's going and these sorts of ideas. Like what, what is Jesus doing now? And we tend to gloss over them sometimes like there's geographical markers and there's these sorts of things. But for disciplined Bible readers, when we look at these three verses, we see specific terms and phrases and words that the author wants to demonstrate to us under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ, wants to demonstrate to us in order to anchor this in our hearts. So this should deeply impact how we understand the 31 previous weeks that we've spent in the Sermon on the Mount. These three verses should give us that. So we're just going to take this verse by verse and we're going to break it down because it's sort of formulaic. It's sort of formulaic. It's just three verses that give us some setting and some understanding and yet again, deeply impactful. So look at verse 28 with me. Matthew writes this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The first thing we need to acknowledge when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and look at these three verses is that the words of Jesus are astonishing. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and we see the setting, how Jesus sets this up, or how Matthew sets up Jesus' sermon for us, in chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew writes, Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now, for the, the, the first century readers of Matthew's gospel, this would have been deeply reminiscent of Moses. This is important because Jewish audience, Matthew's audience is Jewish. We need to know and understand that this would have been deeply reminiscent for Moses. They're sort of going up a mountain. That reminds me of Moses. We're going to think about this. Now, as Jesus is on the mountain... Moses goes up the mountain, receives God's instruction. We see this happen in the book of Exodus. And Jesus is God on the mountain giving instruction. So we see a connection here. There's a connection point here that's made. All of a sudden, the instruction that Moses receives, the, the source of that instruction is actually the one who's up on the mountain now speaking the instruction. And Jesus' instruction is showing his followers what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Again, again, again. We've said this a thousand times throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is designed to demonstrate to us what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you profess Christ, if you've trusted him, if you believe that he came to earth, he died for your forgiveness of sins and so that you might be credited righteousness so that you can have perfect relationship with God restored so that you can spend eternity with him, not separated from him. If you believe in your heart that these things are true, if you trust Jesus with the remainder of your life and if you are consistently and progressively being made more into the image of Jesus Christ, these things show us this is what it means to be a kingdom of citizen, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are, if those things are true of you, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So the answer, the question then is that we must answer is how do kingdom citizens live? 
And this idea draws a crowd. This idea draws a crowd. So we saw in 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Jesus starts out with his disciples around him only, probably withdrawing from the crowd. He probably was maybe a little overwhelmed. He was man. He was a man, probably a little overwhelmed with this group of people who saw him right before we get to chapter 5, healing people, casting out demons, crazy things are happening, crowds are gathering, and Jesus is like, I need to withdraw, I need a little bit of silence, I need a little bit of solitude. Disciples, come with me, there are only a handful at that point, come with me, let's go up the mountain, let me give you some pointed instruction here and now. And so he withdraws up the mountain. His disciples come with him, but the crowd he was getting away from sought him out and were overhearing this man speak to his followers. Now, Jesus was not like the religious leaders of the day, and this is important as we look at this first verse here in verse 28. Jesus was not like the religious leaders of the day. He was not a Pharisee, not a scribe. He was just a carpenter from Nazareth. This is early on in his ministry. He just built stuff. He built stuff with his hands, and then all of a sudden he starts doing things. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, comes back out of the wilderness, casting out demons, healing people, goes up the mountain, preaches this sermon very early in his ministry. Jesus didn't sit at the feet of guys who knew all the ins and outs of Jewish religious life. To the crowds, he was just sort of a run-of-the-mill, ordinary guy. But those words that were coming out of his mouth, there was something about them. And before he started teaching, he was healing people, casting out demons. None of the religious leaders were doing any of that. And his status was kind of as a nobody and sort of this instant phenomenon overnight. And his ministry was already so rich. And the words that he spoke were something, there was something about them. And again, his earthly ministry had just begun, pretty fresh for the people He hadn't even called, like I said, all of his disciples yet, all really knew. And this message of newness resonated with the people in a way that the religious leader's message hadn't in the past. And this crowd gathered. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, we've quoted him several times. He says this, How difficult is it for us, because of our sheer familiarity with these facts and details, to realize that these things actually happened nearly 2,000 years ago and to realize what the effect must have been upon the Lord's contemporaries. And we see then in verse 28, astonishment, amazement by the crowd. This guy's teaching is something else. And their astonishment was off the charts. The crowd was drawn in by the words of Jesus. There was something different. Things are happening. And so as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, we have to ask, our, ask ourselves, do we, find, do we find these words amazing? Do we find them astonishing? Have they become cliche for us? We sometimes think about the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you were familiar with it before we jumped in. Maybe you weren't. Maybe we start to find, like I said, these things cliche. Yeah, okay, there's the golden rule. Something about not judging people. (laughs) Salt, we're salt or something like that. This little light of mine, all of that. But when we really slow down in these, we have slowed down in these three chapters. When we really slow down the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Are they really astonishing to us? And all of the words of Scripture, do we find them astonishing? And I argue that we should. We should find them astonishing. 
And we as a people really need to reclaim that wonder. I think we really need to reclaim that wonder. This needs to be a prayer of ours, a consistent prayer that when we go to the word, our minds would be open, our eyes would be opened, our ears would be formed to hear the truth of God's word and what it means for us. And we were created for astonishment, for wonder, to marvel. We were created for that. And in one sense, I'm convinced that what it, that's what it means to bring glory to God, to marvel at who he is, to sit back and to understand in the depths of the riches and the knowledge of God. We've become a people in 21st century, in our 21st century society whose heads are usually down, looking at screens <laughs> instead of looking up and seeing the heavens. Or maybe we're just looking down at the wrong thing and it shouldn't be a screen, but it should be the Word of God. All that was created was created by God's words. He said, Let there be light or let there be fill in the blank. Everything was created by God, just with a word, and it happened, and it was, and it existed after not existing. And we were created to bring God glory by marveling at what he created with no more effort than a word. Stars and galaxies and mountains and elephants and dolphins and your cardiovascular system were all created by God with a word. Psalm 19.1 says, The heaven declare the glory of God. The, go, the glory of God is generally revealed to us in what he created with the word. And the word that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount flows from the same source that created panthers and oceans and sequoias. So King David paints a great picture for us. So I wanted you to take your Bible. If you have your Bible in front of you, keep your finger here. I don't ask you to do this much. Maybe I should. Keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 7. Flip back to Psalm 19. Somewhere right in the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalm 19. We're going to camp out here for a couple of minutes because I think this, this point needs to be driven home. When, when we find out that the crowds were astonished by what Jesus says to them, um, I wonder if we wonder or marvel at them in the way that King David did. King David is going to paint this picture for us. I think as believers, we really need to get on this, on this train. We mentioned Psalm 19.1 a moment ago, that first line at least of Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. But look at the first six verses with me. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and, the night, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is about King David being astonished at creation. He looked at creation. In verse 1, we see that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It is speaking, it is declaring the glory of God. And then in verse 2, day to day, every day, it cannot help but overflow of its knowledge of its creator. 
It keeps on proclaiming. It can't be stopped. In verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It keeps on going. There is nothing that contain, can contain this immense outpouring of speech to the glory of God that is coming from creation. And in verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. This is happening all over the earth. Not in a confined space, but all over the earth. Every single day, all over the earth, creation is declaring the glory of God. There is not a part of creation that is not at any time declaring the glory of God. And this is happening all of the time. The most observable, luminescent body in all of creation, our sun, or at least observably, that our sun He says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. What is the in them? The in them is these whispers that God is being declared as glorified in all of creation. Creation is whispering the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. And this is a a structure for the sun. It's like a score of music. It's quiet at first. There's tension, building, voices declaring. A tree is growing in their declaration. The waves are lapping against the shore and rhythmically in declaration, the birds fly overhead. The wind blows through the prairie grass. The sky turns from black to orange to pink to blue, declaring the glory of God. And then out of the tent, the sun, the giver of life and light, reveals himself. He comes out of this tent and he that's whispering God's glory, and he's preparing for his wedding. Every single day, you and I behold a wedding. The sun coming up over the horizon. And I know we live in North Dakota, and so sometimes we don't see the sun. But the reality is the sun still comes up. We're preparing for this wedding. The sun is preparing for his wedding, which happens every day in this incredible celebration of creation. Always this overwhelming reality. It's always something to marvel at. King David sees it and he marvels. Coming out of his, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, he runs his course with joy. The mystery of this incandescent burning plasma coming up over the horizon because the God of the universe just spoke it into existence. And with unfailing, overwhelmingly, overwhelming consistency, the sun comes up over the horizon. And it runs its course with joy because it finds its purpose in bringing glory to the Most High God. And then we see verse 6. It's rising from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing can stop it from achieving its purpose. What is the sun's purpose? To declare the glory of God. To declare the glory of God. Nothing can douse its nuclear activity. 
This nuclear activity which without fail is proclaiming the glory of God. This psalm is written to make us marvel that creation is declaring the glory of God. But the first six verses are not even the beginning of it. Because just as generally revealed is God through his creation, he has specifically revealed us to us something about himself in his written word. And David goes on in verses 7 through 14. Let me read them. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them, have, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, to you, to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David gives us six things and marvels at how God uses them. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, and they revive the soul. They make wise the simple. They rejoice the heart. They enlighten the eyes. They endure forever, and they are righteous altogether. Creation does one thing, and it does it really well. It declares the glory of God. But God's written word does and accomplishes all of these and so much more. This is incredible. The written word of God, the law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and rules revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and are righteous altogether. And this is incredible. David probably had the first five books of God's word, maybe a little bit more. And he writes this about, he's astonished at the words of God and how effective they are. We probably have about 12 times as much volume of God's word. How much more should we marvel? How much more should we be astonished? David continues, Desire, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Do you desire the word of God more than gold? I don't know if I can answer that question. If someone came up and handed me a brick of gold or the Bible... Consider that. But King David, who probably had a lot more gold than I'll ever see in my lifetime, says, more to be desired are they than gold. This law, this testimony, these precepts, these commandments, this fear, these rules. They're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Your soul needs the word of God more than sweetness and things that are desired more than anything else on earth. And God warns us we can discern our errors, we can be free from presumptuous sins. This shows us how to be blameless. And David concludes verse 14. This is a popular verse. It needs to be taken here, considering all of the psalm, though. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
And just as God's word is effective in giving life, so also he's calling us here, so also should our words bring God glory and give life. Now this is hard. Because we live in a world which is heavily individualistic. Lots of complaining going on. Lots of angry Facebook exchanges going on. Lots of workplace slander and frustration going on. And, and David calls his readers, when he prays this prayer, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When our speech is given to us to declare the glory of God through love for him and love for others. And he says, the meditations of my heart. Meditation, not some Eastern practice. He's not talking about that, but a full-on recognition of a slowing down and rolling around God's words in your mind and letting them precipitate in your heart. I have to admit, I love this psalm. I've been thinking about this psalm regularly for like the better part of a decade. It's rolled around in my head for that long. But meditation leads to astonishment. It leads to amazement. If we gloss over these words, if you read a psalm a day and you sit down and you take the two minutes that it takes to read through this and then you move on, you're not going to be amazed. You're not going to be astonished. But he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. What does acceptable meditation look like? It looks like being astonished by God's word. So let me encourage you in this, as we look at this, we obviously emphasize scripture a lot here, but sometimes daily Bible reading is just that two minutes. It's just spending that two minutes and getting through the psalm. And it's not easy, we know that. Sometimes you just got to get it in there and do it. But if you approach the Bible and think that you're always going to walk away feeling some sense of amazement, you're going to be disappointed. And the reality is that the Bible is ineffective at communicating, is not ineffective at communicating amazing, marvelous truths about God. The reality is that most times our heart is just oriented the wrong direction. That it's not that the Bible is ever ineffective in accomplishing its purposes, but that our hearts are pointed towards something else, some empty idol some object of worship that is not God himself. You say, well, I've never found this to be overwhelmingly beautiful. I've never found these truths to leave me in amazement and wonder, and the, the, the admonishment in that is to keep digging. Keep digging. David Mathis in his book, Habits of Grace, says that Bible reading, just like sitting down and reading a chunk of text, is like raking. It's necessary work, but what you wind up with is leaves. And it's necessary, but you get leaves. He said meditation is like sitting down and digging, and digging, and digging. It's much harder work. It requires a lot of you, a lot of energy, but you may wind up with diamonds. And so, the followers of Jesus, the ones who followed him up the mountain, they responded to Jesus' words in astonishment. So back to the Sermon on the Mount. Crowds are astonished. They're amazed by Jesus' words because they flowed from the same source that created and is sustaining all things. 
And then what is contained within that source? What made these words apparently different to the crowd? We get to verse 29. And it's one word that's tucked right in here. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. Not as their scribes. So the words of Jesus are astonishing and the words of Jesus contain authority. There is no denying that Jesus' words are authoritative. In the original language, this word conveys the idea that Jesus had the potential or resource to command, control, or govern. There was this gravitas with which Jesus spoke that drew people in. His commands demanded response because he spoke them in a way that made the hearer desire to respond. Because his knowledge was not in line with the current established religious mindset. It challenged the interpretation, the the prevailing interpretations of the Old Testament while considering all of it without getting rid of any of it and giving it more weight than it had ever had for any of its readers or hearers. And the people were astonished because in that moment they recognized Jesus' words were divine, not those of just mere men. I can't imagine if someone was traveling past the mountain, they saw this crowd gathering, and maybe they come in for the last few minutes of Jesus' sermon, and they asked somebody who had been there for the majority of the sermon, they said, who is this rabbi? Who is this teacher? What are his credentials? Give me his credentials. We like that. We like credentials. Under whom did he study? And the response, I'm pretty sure, would be something, I'm pretty sure he's a carpenter from Nazareth, but he, but he did heal some people earlier. But he speaks with such authority. And you know a compelling person when you hear, you understand a person is compelling when you hear that person speak. Usually it's not just, the pre- you have to hear them speak. Like a football coach who comes in at halftime and gives a rousing speech and you want to run through a wall even though you're down 35 points. I'm so salty about that Vikings loss. Or like Braveheart. Which guy in here, after watching Braveheart, wasn't ready to go to war? Even though it was like completely illogical because you were sitting in a college dorm room eating Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew? You're like, I'm not ready to go to war. But I'm ready to go to war. This is what Jesus sparked in the people. He had authority. He has the power to command and control. He has the power to speak the very words of God because he himself was the word of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees quoted other authorities. They said, So and so says unto you, and Jesus, we saw time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount, says, I say to you. They didn't have authority in and of themselves. Not as their scribes, like Matthew records. I can imagine hearing the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mountain thinking, one, this guy is teaching something different. But two, it's so clear. It makes so much sense. I feel burdened when the scribes and the Pharisees speak. When Jesus speaks, I understand. He really understands the challenges that I'm facing There's something different about the way that he speaks, and I understand, and therefore, I want 
to follow. And so we come to the end of that idea, the authority of Jesus. Jesus' words contain authority. And then finally this morning, the authoritative words of Jesus create a following. The, the authoritative words of Jesus create a following. And in one, the very next verse, this is what we see. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And Matthew says that this great crowd came after him, but we wouldn't be mistaken to think that these were the people that followed him in the long haul. There's a bit of a turn here for us. We need to take into consideration all of the rest of what Matthew writes to us about the life of Jesus and his ministry. These were the people who followed Jesus down from the mountain. These were like the ones that we talked about last week. Sure, some built their house on the rock, some built their house on the words of Jesus, but others... Others found something much sandier to build their house on. They heard, but they didn't act. And when Jesus willingly gave up his life and the authority with which he preached, and the Sermon on the Mount seemed to diminish as he was mocked, as he was tried, as he was tortured and killed, in those moments, if they built on the words of Jesus, this became increasingly important for them. You see, for those who hear Jesus' words but don't act on them, they're the ones who will be persuaded and give in when the crowd start yelling, crucify him. And this comes across as a stern warning for us. And there are many of you in here who like some stuff about Jesus that you can get on board with. But throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe there's been one or two places where you've thought to yourself, I'm not really sure if I can, I can go with that. Maybe it's Jesus' call to depend on him completely. Maybe it's his understanding of sex and sexuality. Maybe it's his understanding of divorce and remarriage. Maybe it's the way he talks about money. Maybe it's how he challenges you in anger and lust. Maybe it's, an inconvenient, maybe it's inconvenient to pray like he tells us to. Maybe it's the way he makes no allowance for us harboring bitterness and resentment. But those who follow Jesus aren't just in it to get healed or hang out with a guy who is at the front, the forefront of sort of the most frequent religious trends. Those who follow Jesus are the ones who are left when he is brutally murdered and when it is illegal to associate with him. Those closest to him, Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. These crowds that follow him down the mountain in chapter 8, verse 1, they're the ones who murder him. But nonetheless, Jesus' authoritative words create a following. Why? Because they have the ability to make dead people alive. Because they have the ability to form spiritual ears. We get this wrong in the church 99 times out of 100. That's hyperbole. Maybe not that often. Success in the realm of Christianity is not measured in the quantity of people who claim to follow Jesus when the outlook is good, like when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, but by those who claim to follow Jesus when persecution and suffering come. Jesus' authoritative words create a following of those who are prepared to suffer like he suffered and endured what he endured. The crowds followed him down the mountain, but when the going got tough, only a handful were left. 
And so, brothers and sisters of Buffalo City Church, if you identify with Buffalo City Church, please hear this. How you respond to difficulty, how you respond to uh, affliction, how you respond to suffering is very important. I'm not overextending or taking this outside of the text. We cannot talk about this enough. Just because they follow Jesus down the mountain didn't make them followers of Jesus. There were many more sand builders in this group than there were rock builders because they saw that they might be on the wrong side of history, so they bailed out. And they threw away Jesus' words. If we are going to be a church that endures, that endures, we must not throw away Jesus' words when affliction comes and when we suffer. How do we do that? Know God, know Jesus' words inside and out. Seek to know God by what he's revealed to his words. Pray for ears to hear. Pray that God would give us joy in the midst of affliction. Texts, James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Colossians 1-24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Philippians 3-8, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth, uh, worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Romans 5, 3-5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We could go on and on. When difficulty, troubles, trials, affliction, suffering come our way, Will we say like Job in Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or will you quickly abandon Jesus? Will you quickly turn the other way when it's no longer cool or culturally acceptable or the populist opinion? When that kind of affliction, that kind of social pressure caused those who followed Jesus down the mountain to abandon him when he went to the cross. And so we need to ask this question of ourselves. How do I think about difficulty in my life? And am I prepared to take up my cross or will I abandon Jesus at the first hint of trouble? Friends, this is one reason we stress the importance of the local church and being together regularly. You need to be together in God's word with other believers. You need to sing with joy with other believers. You need to be reminded of what Peter reminds his readers in 1 Peter 4, 12-16. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as it is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. And if you are not intimately tied to the local church, to the life of other believers, you will quickly forget 
Like the crowds that turned to Jesus, turned on Jesus, we must be on our guard against responding in faithlessness when affliction comes. We must hear his words and faithfully endure. Now that's not an easy thing to hear. This is not an, an easy thing to hear. So as we come to the end of this Sermon on the Mount, we're just going to ask ourselves a few questions. We're going to go to the Lord's table. First question is this, are we marveling at Jesus' words? When we come to the end of this, are we marveling at Jesus' words? Are we amazed at what he said? Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there are many people who are not even astonished by the sermon. God forbid that should be true of any of us. First question, are we marveling at the words of Jesus? Second question, are we prepared for the difficulties that accompany believing the words of Jesus and living according to them? Are we prepared for the difficulties that accompany believing the words of Jesus and living according to them? They are coming. Don't be surprised. Peter tells his readers that. Don't think that they're strange when they come upon you. It's going to happen. Are we building on the rock? Do we hear, and then finally, third question, when we hear the words of Jesus, do we recognize his authority? Do we recognize his authority? Do we hear a command for a, from a gracious, loving king? Or do we hear suggestions or a list of best practices? I hope it's not the latter. So we're going to move to the Lord's table. I just invite you, just bow your head where you sit, and let's think about these things together. I'm just going to repeat these questions. Maybe just do a little internal processing as we prepare for the Lord's table, and I'll give us instructions in a second. I'll ask each one of these questions and maybe just take 30 seconds to respond in your own heart. I pray now that the Holy Spirit would keep us from distraction. First question, are you marveling at the words of Jesus? Do you marvel at God's word? If you listen, if you hear that question, and your answer is no, ask that you would be amazed. If the answer is yes, pray that God would cause you to be even more astonished by the truth of what he's given to us in his word? Second question, are you prepared for the difficulties that accompany believing the words of Jesus and living according to them? This might come in the form of sickness. It might come in the form of a strained relationship. Are you prepared for the difficulties that accompany believing the words of Jesus and living according to them? It might come in the form of significant lack of clarity about the direction of your life. You know what that thing is, that difficulty is. Finally, when you hear the words of Jesus, do you hear a command from your gracious, loving king or something else?
In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table. This is something that we do together as Buffalo City Church. Um, if you are not part of Buffalo City Church, that is okay. And we just ask that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you've trusted him. If you're not sure what that means, I just ask for you not to participate this morning. As we believe that this is something given to us as believers to participate in. It's another way that we marvel. It's another way that we are amazed at what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We go, we pick up bread that is representative of a broken body for us. We drink the juice that's representative of the shed blood for our forgiveness of sins. We go to this table to, to proclaim what Paul says. We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns and the effectiveness of that death to bring us back to, to God. But contained within all that, there is a celebration also. We celebrate that one day we will, as God's people, feast together in God's presence. So we're also celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we go to this table. This is not a, an event that we do because we feel as though we are obligated it is something that God commands us to do, that Jesus commands us to do in Scripture. But it is not something that we come to um, out of tradition or, or sort of a, a rote understanding of what it means to be a Christian. But we do it with an intentional understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. When we come up here, we proclaim the gospel to each other. This is not just a vertical interaction, but it's also a horizontal one. We proclaim that we understand that righteousness has been credited to us and that we can stand in the presence of God and not endure his wrath because Christ has done it for us. We understand that the sin that's separated from us God has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so again, that's what we're proclaiming when we come to the table. Jesus' death, his resurrection, and our future hope and glory.